Good evening, everyone. My name is Betsy. I'm a member here, and I will be reading our sermon scripture passage for tonight. Um, tonight, we'll be reading from Psalm 2, so I invite you to turn there in your Bible. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we do have some in the lobby. You're welcome to take one of those as our gift to you. Um, you can also, of course, look it up on your phone, or if you're um, joining us virtually today, you can look it up on your computer. So once again, we are reading from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is, is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is God's word. Thank you, Betsy. Well, hello, church. It's good to be back with you. And wow, you guys are very bright, like in a sea of black and white. Sorry to call you out. It was just kind of shocking. Um, you look you look good. You look good, though. Yeah. Anyway, where were we? Um, yeah, so... Uh, for those of you who are new, welcome. It's great to have you with us. And so we are in a series in the Psalms for the next few months. And the title of the series, it is good to near, it is good to be near God. This comes from the climax of Psalm 73. And it's good when you go through any book in a teaching series, devotional series, or sermon series to always have one takeaway or one main, one main thread that goes through the book. And so for the Psalms, it's, it is good to be near God. That's essentially what all the Psalms are about. And because there's going to be a lot of sermons in the Psalms, but years from now, you're probably not going to remember much. Uh, but if all you remember is this one thing, that it is good to be near God, that's a win. Because what we want to be as a people is not a group of people who are vicarious Christians and remain that way, where we can constantly tell people, you know, what a great commentary says about God or what, a, what our favorite Bible teacher says about God, but a people who, where we ourselves experience God and actually draw near to him like firsthand in the ups and downs of our lives. And so today we're in Psalm 2. Uh, last week, Dr. Jun took us through Psalm 1. And Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, the consensus is they were originally one psalm. Um, and you can tell because they're bracketed by Psalm 1 starts with blessed or happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And then you see Psalm 2 is bracketed at the end with blessed or happy or all those who take refuge in Jesus. So Psalm 1 and 2 serve as the doorway into the psalms. And they're, they should frame how we view the Psalms as we go through our series. And so here's how Psalm 2 is helpful. Um, so I, when I was in college, I lived in a house with 10 other dudes. I don't know why landlords let this happen. Like a bunch of men and boys just live in a house together, but they did. And so I was in a house with 10 dudes and every few weeks we would do a movie night. You know, so we order a bunch of pizza and go down to the basement, big screen TV and so forth. And I think all of you can resonate with this, where anytime you've gotten together with a big group of people for a movie, there, there always has to be that one person who can't stop talking during the movie. 
maybe you are that person. And you know who you are if you're that person. So for us, it was this guy named Danny. And Danny, it's not just that he would like talk all the time because he was so excited. If he had seen the movie before, he would give the spoilers away. So if you're watching an intense drama, you know, a new scene happens and he would say out loud, all right, guys, make sure you pay attention to the scene because that's when so-and-so dies. Or, hey, I, you know, just wait till you get to the end when you see how so-and-so wins this way. And we're just like, dude, you can't, it's movie watching 101. Eventually, he was, like, his privileges of watching movies with us was revoked because he, he could not help himself. Right? And so, maybe you like spoilers. I don't like spoilers. Um, most people don't, I don't think. But there is one spoiler I think that every single person wants. And that's the answer to the question, basically, like, will I be happy? at the end of my life. You know, so in, in the midst of a world that's filled with, in my life, that's filled with so much uncertainty and so much pain and angst, at the end of all things, like, will I be okay? Um, and because of that, can I be happy in the moment? And that's what Psalm 2 helps us with. It gives us a spoiler for the end of history um, to know that we will be happy in the end. And because we know that, that's going to change the ups and downs of our lived experience today. You know, Dr. John ended the sermon last Sunday. Remember that illustration he gave with you have two people, exact same job. One person at the end of the year is going to make $10,000. The other person at the end of the year is going to make $10 billion. That's going to make a very big difference, you know, in how you live today. Um, that's what Psalm 2 is essentially doing for us as we look at the ups and downs of our lives. Okay, so uh, here's how well, it's, it's broken up into some pretty even sections. So first we'll look at, uh, number one, the bluster of humanity, uh, the bluster of humanity. Number two, we'll look at the confidence of God, contrast, huge contrast there. And then number three, how should we respond in light of these things? So number one, the bluster of humanity. Number two, the confidence of God. And number three, how we should respond in light of these two realities and perspectives. Okay, so first, number one, the bluster of humanity, starting in verse one. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? So the psalmist looks out, you know, in the human realm of experience. And what he's doing here is, see that word plot in verse 1? Why do the people's plot in vain? That's the same word used in Psalm 1 to talk about the person who meditates. So plot and meditate, same word there. So what the psalmist is doing is he's contrasting the happiness of the person in Psalm 1 who meditates on the law of the Lord, uh, which Jesus fulfilled as we saw that last week, and the people who rage and plot or meditate on vanity because they're trying to control their life apart from God. Okay, so there's a contrast going on there. And I mean, we don't have to work very hard to see when you look out into the world, there's a lot of raging going on. You know, if Twitter and Facebook have shown us one thing, it's that people love to rage. People love to throw empty words at each other. And if you're not the person who likes to write those comments, you love to spend hours reading the comments of people raging and blustering at each other all the time. Okay, so this isn't anything new. People love to rage. So he continues in verse two, not just the common folk, but who? Verse two, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. So even the rulers shout and bluster. And you know, like one of the saddest things to see is to look at leaders, the people who should be modeling prudence and sacrificial service to others, and instead see them fretting and, you know, just pouncing, like uh, stomping around like toddlers. And I don't say this in a, you know, at First Peter we learn we're to, we're, we're to respect our leaders and submit to our governmental leaders that are over us, but at the same time, you know, is it not frustrating when you 
look at our political square today, and it's always been this way to some degree, but maybe maybe more so than ever, where when you watch political leaders on either side of the aisle get up and talk to a large group of people, very rarely is it um, you know, a very thoughtful policy that they're presenting or a reasoned discourse designed to, you know, like winsomely persuade the other side. Instead, what is it? It's essentially, they're like stand-up comedians who throw out cynical one-liners or hot takes, basically just designed to insult their opponents and rally up their base. It's, instead of them actually leading in the way that they should, they often act like children. But this is not a new thing. Okay, this has been going on for thousands of years. So the rulers do this as well. Okay, so why do people rage? What are the rulers taking counsel together about? So um, verse 2b, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cast away their cords from us. So now the rulers are coming together and they're united against who? Against the Lord and against his anointed. And in this context, that was the Lord's king that he installed who was to represent God and give God's law to his people. And they say in verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart, i.e. all any law or rule that God tries to put on us. Let's just break his bonds because we're much happier if we live apart from God's law. And so what we see here is the kings of the earth uniting together. And this is, it's very helpful because what we see is, so even in our nation that's maybe more divided than it has ever been, there's still something that unites all of humanity at the deepest level. So Democrat, Republican, religious, not religious, urban, rural, and that is a deep hatred toward God. That's what unites every single human being. And you might be sitting here and saying, well, that sounds kind of weird because I don't hate God. Or even before I became a Christian, I don't remember hating God. You know, maybe I was indifferent toward him, but I don't hate God. And the key is, that's because you and other people in our nation aren't thinking of the real God. Because when you pull Americans, you know, most Amer- the large majority of Americans, um, you know, across different sects of Christianity and other religions, they will say they believe in God. And they, they love God. But when you probe and ask questions about the character of this God that they believe in, and even the God that they love, what you find out is what this God looks like is more of an indulgent grandfather who's very low maintenance, and he never contradicts your heart's desires, and basically just says, yeah, whatever you want to do, go for it. You have my blessing. But the real God, the God of the Bible, who's both more, more kind and yet more authoritative than the God that most people believe in, that God we hate. And the reason we know this is because when that God set foot on the stage of human history, we killed him. (laughs) And you read about this in Acts chapter 4. So Psalm 2 is quoted um, in the New Testament all over the place. And in Acts 4, after the Christians were arrested for preaching Jesus, they quote Psalm 2, uh, Acts 4, 24, and they say, They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, now they apply the psalm to what just happened. In this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So here we see everybody, Herod and Pilate, the powerful rulers, Gentiles, the heathens, and the people of Israel, the religious people. That's everyone. Okay, common rulers, religious, non-religious, everybody united against Jesus to kill him. 
And because what people saw is like, yes, was Jesus so gentle? Did he heal people? Did he give great food? Yes, but he also said the kingdom of God is at hand and I'm the king of that kingdom and I demand your total allegiance. And we hate that. So we murdered him. And so, you know, just a couple of, couple practical applications for those of you here today. So first, for those of you who are here and who are exploring the faith um, and you're not a Christian, you know, maybe this idea of, you know, bursting the bonds of God apart, this idea of more freedom and happiness is going to be found apart from God's rule. Um, maybe, maybe you resonate with that, and I totally get that if you do. And just here's something to consider, because often, especially in our modern era, when you think about, I'm just going to be happier apart from a God who has all these rules, um, First, if you do have that question, know that we're so glad you're here because from day one, this has been a church where we want this to be a space where you can come and let us know what you believe or don't believe about God and ask questions that are often seen as very inappropriate in church circles. So first, if you have those questions, please ask them. You know, we're so glad that you're here. But number two, here's, here's what's helpful. So that idea that I can spread my wings and I'm going to be happier apart from God— that sounds like a very modern, progressive, enlightened idea. Okay, you know, we've moved past fairy tales. You know, I know this God no longer exists, or if he does, he's not like the God of the Bible. But it can just be so sober, sobering and helpful to know that that idea is very old and unoriginal. Like this idea, it goes back as far as the Bronze and Stone Age, and if you believe the Bible, you know, which we do, it goes back to the beginning of human history itself. This isn't a modern, and it could just be very helpful to know this has been humanity's problem from day one, that we're happier apart from, God, from God's law. And number two, uh, for those of you who are here and you're Christians, I, just, I wonder if you've ever considered, like one of the ways you know you're a Christian is because you realize there came a point in your life where you realized that you hated God. You weren't just indifferent to him, but you actually hated God. And this isn't to beat you over the shoulder, but the reason why it's so helpful, you know, Romans 3 says this, you know, no one seeks after God, the real God, is you wouldn't even like God if God hadn't, in his mercy, first opened your eyes and made you want to love him. And so just, if there's a, a thrill missing in your Christian life, often it can, it can be because there's a subconscious, maybe, like sense of entitlement to your faith. And that God owed you something. Um, also, there can be uh, a lot of pride and impatience with people who you don't think are as moral as you or people who are as noble as you. But when you understand what the Titus 3.5 says, God saved us not because of works done in righteousness, but because of his mercy. <laughs> that changes a lot. And then number two is you think about growing as a Christian. As you grow, in a Christ, as, you grow as a Christian, you realize that you, you begin to have your eyes open to those residual corners of your heart that still hate God. And so just think about, you know, where in your life is there, there's something God says in his word, you know, it's a part of his law, where you just, you have to have the final say. You might follow him in, you know, nine other areas, but there's that one area where you have to have the final say. And surrender that, because what the psalmist is saying here is that that's what the people do who, who rage against God. Okay, so number one, that is the, the rage and bluster of humanity. So now let's go to number two, um, the confidence of God. So now the scene changes and we look up in the heavens in the throne room. Verse four, he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Okay, so we have all this raging going on, the shouting going on, and how does God respond to the most powerful people in the world raging and shouting? He laughs. 
He gives a big LOL to the strongest people of the world. And what the psalmist, and then he says, Lords, hold them in derision. Now, what this isn't saying is God is a cruel tyrant, and it's not setting this in contrast to the fact that God loves the world. No, the, the psalmists often, the psalms speak in poetic imagery to help us to appreciate old truths in, in new ways. And so there's a great difference between saying plainly, God is in control, and God laughs at the most powerful people who set their will against him, right? And so that's what it's saying is God sees the most powerful people, like in all their might, even the people that many of us may be fearful of or intimidated by, and he laughs at them. It's a little bit like the, if you've seen The Fellowship of the Ring, the movie, hopefully you have, and it's the scene at the, at the end of The Prancing Pony where, you know, you have Aragorn, he's 6'3", he's the world's best swordsman, he's the great king, and Sam is a three-foot hobbit, and he doesn't trust Aragorn yet, and so, you know, Aragorn takes Frodo up into one of the rooms in the inn, and Sam comes, you know, bursting into the room, and, he, you know, Aragorn has his sword out, and Sam goes, you know, let him go or I'll have you long shanks with his fists up, and what does Aragorn do? He, he laughs. Like he just smirks and he, he sheathes his sword and he says, I think he says, he goes, you have a stout heart, little hobbit, but that will not save you. And like you just couldn't see more of a power differential, right? Like greatest swordsman, great king of the world and a three foot hobbit who's never been in a fight before. And Aragorn, what? He just like, he, he puts his weapon away because he's like, all right, you can come at me, um, but it's not going to do anything. And I mean, how much more so the power, power differential between God and the, and the greatest people of the world. And so keep going. Verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath, saying, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So this is a confident assertion on God's part. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And immediately he's talking about King David. But King David didn't fulfill all the, you know, the high language that the psalm talks about. So ultimately he's talking about Jesus. And so what God is saying is in response to everybody raging against God, you know, and all the anxiety we see in the world is he says, I have set King Jesus on the throne of the world. I'm not surprised by anything that's happening in your life. I'm not frightened by anything that's happening in your life. I'm certainly not incapable of handling anything that's going on in your life. And you have a great king who rules over all. And so when you feel anxiety welling up in your own heart or you start to get fearful about things happening in the world or in your own life, the answer that the psalmist gives is to take your eyes away from just the chaos of this plane and to look up into the heavens, not with panic, but with confidence because God's absolutely in charge and in control. You know, Sam, after he leaves Bree, he, he now, he then stops hating Aragorn and he aligns himself with him. You know, Sam's a small person in a big world. But as they travel together, Aragorn, the great king, defends him. And Sam's safe because he's united with Aragorn. In the same way, when you are united with Jesus, he takes absolute care of you against all the greatest forces of the world. Okay, so that's the confidence of God, the first part of it. Then we move to part two, verse seven. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So here the voice changes from God speaking in heaven to his anointed speaking. And first in the immediate context, you know, so we want to always be careful not jump too quickly to Jesus. Uh, so so in, a, in its immediate context, he's talking about King David. Hopefully you guys remember from 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant, right? Yes, yes. Where, where God says, you know, your offspring after you, they will be to me as a son and I will be to them as a father. 
So immediately God's talking about David and those in his line. But then look in verse 8. I will make the nations your, her- your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And so, I mean, David was the greatest king and he was just the first one. And then after that, it was all down- downhill after that. And so this was a coronation psalm often read at the when kings would be crowned. And so when people are reading this about a new king, especially the horrible kings that were coordinated, like language like the ends of the earth are you're going to be, are going to be your possession. That would either be a, just a sad joke because no Israelite came, became, came close to that, or it's a promise. It's a promise about God's future king. And this is just, it's so amazing how the Bible over thousands of years is all one story because the New Testament, more than most other Psalms, quotes this Psalm. And so uh, Acts chapter 13 quotes this section, verses 7 through 9, to talk about Jesus' resurrection. Hebrews chapter 1 quotes this part of the psalm to talk about Jesus' superiority over angels. And Hebrews chapter 5 talks about how Jesus' exaltation after his resurrection leads to his ascension in his intercessory priestly role on our behalf. So the New Testament writers saw this psalm as talking about Jesus' resurrection, his exaltation, his absolute superiority over everything in heaven and on earth, and about his, his sympathetic priestly role toward you and me. This is a rich psalm. This is an amazing psalm. And we, can dive, we could dive into it for hours. I don't think you want me to. But the point is, that this is just, it's so incredible how Jesus fulfills all of this. And then verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a, a potter's vessel. Okay, so now we get uncomfortable because modern ears don't like this language about Jesus. You like nice little Jesus holding a lamb and some of you had that painting in your home growing up. (laughs) The same Jesus who will rule the nations and uh, smite the evildoers in pieces like a potter's vessel. And what the psalmist is saying is, yes, is, is Jesus welcoming? Yes. Is Jesus gentle? Absolutely more than anybody. But also Jesus is not soft. And I think even for modern ears that don't like this idea of a, you know, a just God, a God who like lays down vengeance on, on evildoers, just even think about the, what was it, a couple weeks ago when the trial of George Floyd, George Floyd came to a close um, as they were trying the officer who killed him. And I mean, how many millions of people in the nation were on the edge of their seat just like crying for a just sentence to be given? And in our country, I know, you know, we like to complain a lot about our governmental leaders, but we have it pretty good. Uh, We really do. You know, I mean, if you look at the millions, if not billions of other people in the world who live under despots and tyrants and have their families stripped away, have their belongings stripped away, you talk to those people and they're going to tell you they're, if God is up there, he better be more than just gentle. I really hope he's a just God who actually cares about my pain is willing to deal with the horrendous evil that I've experienced. And that's who Jesus is. He's so good. He's also just. Okay, so how do we respond? The raging of the nations, yet we also have this, the confidence of God and the confidence all those who are in him can have. Verse 10, how do we respond? Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed or happy are all those who take refuge in him. This was fascinating to me because as you read about all these people who hate God and how powerful God is, you'd think verse 10 would start, now, therefore, you're toast. But what does it say? O kings, be wise. In other words, what God is doing is even to his enemies, 
he is giving them an invitation. He's saying, stop the madness. See how beautiful I am. See how good I am. See how just I am. And submit to me. That's what kiss the son means, is to pay the son, Jesus Christ, homage. And so what we have here in the psalm is two roads that's being put before us. Run and trust in Jesus. If you take refuge in him, you'll be happy. Or you don't trust in Jesus, and because God is just, you will experience just judgment, eternal separation from God. And so as we think about this, you know, this idea of like complete submission to the Son, running to him, taking refuge, and we'll be happy. Um, this is hard because, you know, currently in our culture, especially in a number of circles, who tend to view all of the world and most of history just through the lens of power, right? Who has power, who doesn't have power, right? And often, and oftentimes for good reason, we've become very skeptical of people who are in power because usually even people who don't expect themselves to turn out this way, once they get in power, they often use it, they often use it for selfish ends rather than to serve the people that they're supposed to be loving and caring for. Uh, but it's interesting, I've been reading this book called um, The Madness of Crowds by Douglas Murray. So he's a British intellectual, uh, he's not a Christian, he comes from a lot of, you know, a lot of left-leaning circles. And he, he's like, you know this idea, and, and he sympathizes with a lot of very liberal positions, but he's like, here's one of the things I've noticed is a lot of the people, you know, crying out for justice for the oppressed, which I agree with, and um, people in privilege needing to give up their privilege in order to lift up those who are more victims. He's like, one thing I've noticed is, I haven't seen many people in privileged positions actually giving up their position. Because, like, people who don't have, like, powerful positions, they need to get there somehow. So I'm waiting for someone who's yelling at everyone else to give up their privilege to actually do it. But I'm not seeing it happen. And that's because there's only one person in the world who's ever actually done that. Who's had the most privilege in the world. And yet gave it up. For you and me. And there's this incredible place in John chapter 19 where Jesus is before one of the most powerful people in the most powerful empire at the time, Pontius Pilate. And uh, where is it? Yeah, chapter 19, verse 10. So this is after Jesus has been flogged, by the way. So he's already like beaten, he's exhausted. And Pilate looks down at Jesus and he says, because Jesus isn't giving him an answer on, you know, who he is and what he's come to do because he knows Pilate and the people aren't going to listen to him. And Pilate says, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And then Jesus answers, you would have no authority over me at all unless it was given to you from above. Like, what a mic drop moment. And you hear what Jesus is saying. He's saying, Pilate, you have no idea that you are like a child standing before a lion right now. And if I wanted, I could snap my fingers and you and all your soldiers would drop dead on the pavement. But what does he say? He says, authority has been given to you from above. In other words, the reason why I and the triune God have given you authority, the only reason you have any drop of authority is because me, instead of putting on a golden crown and smiting you all, Instead, I'm going to pick up a crown of thorns and give up my life so that my children can live. We serve such a, a just king. We also serve such a, a good and compassionate king who actually gave up everything so that we could have everything. 
And so as we close here, you know, the, the psalmist says, that, you know, the only way you can really be happy is by submitting to Jesus and taking refuge in him. Um, so many applications here, but uh, let's just go with, let's just go with two. Uh, so the first thing we saw is in the beginning, the psalmist looks out and he sees raging you know, among the nations. And now, especially with smartphones everywhere, like capturing videos with anything that takes place, uh, there's a lot of, not just raging, but, you know, violence that we're seeing now. Um, all the time, you know, almost every week. And think about even just over the past two months alone, you know, young black men and women who have died, the violence that was uh, put against a lot of uh, Asian Americans in our, nations, in our nation over the past couple months, the Capitol Hill riot that took place, back on January. And what the Psalms do, right, we saw this two weeks ago, is the Psalms help us not stifle our emotions, but also not give in to our emotions, but take our emotions to God so that he directs them accordingly. And so just one question for you is you look at everything that's going on and things are going to continue to be shoved in our face. Is do you even, do you know how you feel about what's been happening? Do you know what you feel? Do you know how you feel about yourself? Do you know how you feel about the world? Do you know how you feel about God? Or do you just put all your feelings in a drawer and you just, you know, open the next email and start typing away? And so the, my challenge to you in reading this psalm, part of taking refuge in Jesus is when you see the chaos of the world, just consider when something like that breaks in the news is how much of your time is spent glued to your news feed and just, you know, watching it, you know, the news just loves to recycle the story over and over and over. Or just, you know, stifling your emotions. Versus, like if you were to tally up time spent on news feeds, everybody talking about it, versus time you spent going before the Lord to pour out your emotions and feelings about what's going on. And the beauty of the Psalms is they're going to help us process, because the Psalms is going to point out even more violent and troubling things that we've, than we've seen on the news. And so my hope for you as you learned, as you see these troubling things happen, rather than just watching you know, the news over and over and over, you, you develop an intuition and an impulse to go to God. And this isn't in a pietistic, pietistic spiritual way where you become separated from the troubles. of the, When you go to God, this actually makes you a more steady person so that you can then be an actual refuge and strong tower, strong tower for other people in your life as Jesus Christ is for you. People have no idea. Our nation has no idea what to do other than just be scared and, you know, let's move on to the next day right now. So these psalms are really going to help us with that. Okay, number number two what does it mean to take refuge in God? Um, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Here's what I love about Psalm 1 and 2 and how the Psalms are structured in general. So the Psalms were written roughly between the year 2500 and 3500 BC. It's a long time ago. Uh, imagine going home today, worship team, and writing a song and people, knowing people are going to be singing it in the year 5000 AD. That's insane. <laughs> like we have such a rich heritage. And what's going on here is the, the psalmist in Israel, they're looking forward to a king who's going to come and make all things new. And in that same way, we're in the same position as the Israelites and as the psalmist. But instead of waiting for a king who's going to come for the first time, we're waiting for that king to come again when he makes everything right. And let's, get, let's keep going because here's why that's so practical. So how the psalms are ordered right is happy are those who take refuge in Jesus and then how the Psalms go is the, roughly the first half of the book are mostly lamentation. You know, lots of, lots of bitterness, lots of despair, lots of darkness, lots of envy, very little praise. 
But then as you hit the midway point of the Psalms, it, it reaches a turning point where on the second half of the Psalms, the Psalms begin to be more um, filled with praise. And so you have more Psalms of praise and less Psalms of lament until the final five Psalms. And some of you who, if you don't delete my emails when they come in, there was a video that was sent out the other week. How the, the final five Psalms are structured is they begin and end with hallelujah, praise the Lord. And so the book of Psalms, it's a story. And it's a story that shows that our lives, they, they, for anyone who's in Jesus, it moves from lament to praise. And so if you are in Christ, it is a, it is as factual as anything else in the world that if you are in Jesus, the best is always yet to come. And while your life will often have periods of lament, periods of thanksgiving, periods of bitterness, darkness, and periods where you don't even know what to do, the end of your life because of Jesus will always end in praise. So in a sense for the, the Christian, the best is always yet to come. And so that should give you hope. That's also a big reason why we're called doxology, because we believe this. This is the story of those who take refuge in Jesus, and happy are those who do so. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that amid uh, all the things that we see and all the things that we experience where we are so helpless to do anything about it, um, you've already, you already have a solution. Uh, you've already uh, started the solution and you are going to complete it. And so I pray for all of us to put our hope fully in you and bring our emotions to you um, as we go to you. Help us all to take refuge in Jesus Christ in a new way this week, to trust you even when we're scared to do so. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.